0: it's important to understand how we sort of measure performance. So we measure performance of high-end HPC resources in terms of flops, floating point operations per second. We do lots of integer processing, but you know most of the variable tops in our codes are double precision. And a, a flop is just take... Two floating point numbers, add them together, multiply them, get the result out. Summit has a peak speed of 200 peta flops. So 200 times 10 to the 15 or <laughs> quintillion operations per second. That's that's peak. That's, you know, if you had everything aligned in memory just perfectly, and could feed those GPUs, unending, uninterrupted string of bits to compute on that. That's the, the peak speed that you could get. So Frontier will be more than an exaflop. So at least five times bigger than that. A little little more than five times bigger than that.
1: Welcome back to Alexa's Input.
0: As simple as possible as possible as necessary, right? Welcome to Alexa's Input. <laughs> Ba-ba-da-ba. Ba-ba-da-ba. The person is probably more interesting than the tool that they're using. Welcome to Alexa's Input!
1: Welcome to the fifth episode. Welcome, Welcome back to the My
0: Then a six year old runs into the data center with a squirt gun and they <laughs> set that machine into a pile of sparks and flames. Yes, it's a good thing to do. This is it the thing we should be doing? Welcome to Alexa's Input.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Alexa's Input. I'm looking forward to the episode today with Bronson Messer. He's a computational astrophysicist. So, a little bit about Bronson he works at Oak Ridge National Laboratory, where he's worked for 16 years. Currently, he's the director of science at the Oak Ridge Leadership Computing Facility, which is a pretty big deal. Right before that, he was distinguished R&D staff. He's also a joint faculty associate professor at the University of Tennessee. Before that, he was a research associate, and he got his Ph.D. at the University of Tennessee in astrophysics. He's involved in a lot of interesting research with high performance computing, HPC. He works on the supercomputers at Oak Ridge, which if you're not familiar with them, you should look it up because they have a really great computing facility and some very powerful supercomputers. And there's a new one coming up that's gonna be Exascale. We'll talk about what Exascale means. But recently, there's been a fun article come out about uh, some things that Bronson has done. Uh, it's titled, What an Astrophysicist Sees in Basketball That You Don't, A Scientist Who Closely Watches NBA Defenses Describes How They Remind Him of a Cosmic Dance. This is a, a neat article. I'm going to put it in the description. Feel free to check it out. Look more up about Bronson Messer. He's an interesting person, and he'll tell you some interesting facts about him coming up. So quickly, I'll go over some of the things that we talk about. We talk about GPU codes, supernovas, how we get them to blow up, in the computer, how computing power has improved the ability to simulate supernovas and other types of scientific research. What is exascale? What it means for scientific computing? Why it's important? Uh, How scientific computing, the community as a whole, has been more and more adopting standard software engineering principles like continuous integration and testing and better code practices. And we talk about the most popular language in scientific computing, which some of you might be surprised by what this is, some of you not. And the longevity uh, scientific code, at the end, I think it's really cool because he talks about the science part of the supernova, how the work he's doing, and how stars explode and... It was just fascinating to hear that at the end when he talks about the cool things that he's working on and just hearing about some of the some of the things that they're doing at Oak Ridge. I mean, it's a great place for some context. I had an internship there right before I became a software engineer and and came to New York and worked at Blue Corps. So it's a very special place. Had an amazing time there. I had some great mentors. I mean, my mentor was amazing, Dmitry Baikov. But also the people around me in the office were just, I mean, they're just really good people. I look back and think of it very fondly and uh, it was a great time for me. So that's my experience with Oak Ridge. Before we get started, make sure to subscribe so you know when a new podcast is coming out. Feel free to donate if you can on Anchor. And don't forget, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I post about new episodes coming up. It, it's at Alexis input. And lastly, I just want to mention that coming up next, I'm going to have an episode with Mike Hurwitz again talking about caching, all things caching. And then at the end, we talk about his open source implementation called Lazy LRU that he implemented for a use case at work and was able to open source it. And hopefully, a lot of people will find that useful for learning about caching and maybe even being able to use his, his implementation. So I look forward to that as well, and I hope you enjoy this episode. So welcome to Alexa's Input. I have with me Bronson Messer. Bronson, would you like to introduce yourself?
0: Hi, I'm Bronson. I'm uh, the director of science at the Oak Ridge Leadership Computing Facility at Oak Ridge National Lab in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Um, I'm a computational astrophysicist by training and have sort of fallen into being the director of science, which is sort of the uh, public facing personage for all the science that we do at the Leadership Computing Facility. And I guess I've, I've officially been in that role for you know, coming up on two years now. I was acting for a while. I, I'd actually done this job before a while back and sort of put it aside to pursue my own research interests, and then came back to it, figuring it was sort of time. But yeah, that, that's that's me in a nutshell.
1: Yeah. So I guess when I left is when you became director of science. What were you before that?
0: Yeah, before that, I I was just a distinguished scientist in the scientific computing group at at the LCF. And the scientific computing group's sort of a a weird kind of thing. Uh, It's a a weird chimera of people that I always say don't have anything in common, really, except they really like to live close to the machine and close to the metal when it comes to the very high end of high performance computing. Uh, So we had... Uh, PhD level domain scientists and lots of different sciences: uh, computational chemistry, computational materials, climate modeling, astrophysicists, um, folks who do. Now we have folks who do lattice QCD, which is the study of the smallest constituents of matter, on a on a computational uh, mesh. We have computational nuclear physicists uh, and people who sort of do everything in between, including some computer scientists who do uh, what we call performance engineering, which is making sure that the codes that run on our big iron uh, actually achieve the maximum possible performance because at the scale we compute at, that, that actually is one of the controlling things that we, uh, we look at, one of the main throttles.
1: Yeah, I really enjoyed being in that group as an intern. It was, it was you're right, it was a lot of different kinds of people and I really enjoyed it because I thought it was a really cool group of people um, and it, they were so different, and they were all working on different but similar things, right. and uh, I just find it fascinating to listen to, you know, the talks where people came, like IBM or Cray. Uh, it was a really great experience for me, and honestly, I think it's why I am where I am now.
0: That's that's terrific to hear. I mean, that's that's the best possible outcome that we could have possibly had. It is <laughs> really sort of like, you know, more than anything, you know, of course, everybody has their own take on, on the work that's getting done. But it's amazing to me how different culturally, sort of work culturally, different scientist types are. Um, yeah. There's a, you know, it's it's almost, it's, 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 it's multicultural in that sense. We have this sort of uh, assumptions and even the way we talk to one another and sort of argue can, uh, in some fields of science, can be sort of more nice for a better for for lack of a better term and, and other people like to you know have this dialectic thing going on where uh you know the sky's blue well actually no it's not when you, <laughs> why kind of, kind of thing and and you have to um you have to normalize over all that but once what you do you're right i, I think our group was uh, is especially collegial uh, we, we don't i don't have not too many people who i wouldn't uh want to have a beer with so
1: yeah uh I definitely uh, agree with that. From what I see, what I saw. So, I want to ask you: When people um, ask you what is an interesting fact about yourself, what do you say? Because I feel like you have a few. Uh,
0: I, I I guess <laughs> I did, uh, let's see. Um, I I've I've sort of played competitive lacrosse and coached competitive lacrosse for about a quarter of a century now it's it's a big part of what I do and and I still I still it's it's the team sport that I played for most of my life I've been a high school lacrosse coach uh, and still am um, and still play old man lacrosse on short fields, so I don't have to move very much i am i am a I'm a multi-day Jeopardy champion so I was on Jeopardy and and won, won enough to make a down payment on my house so that was easily the best uh, the best day of work I've ever had as far as uh remuneration is concerned. Because uh, that's,
1: that's insane. Episode.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so that, that was kind of fun. Um little known fact, apparently I can be on Jeopardy again because the 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 agreement that you sign says that you can never be on again as long as Alex Trebek is the host. And so now that unfortunately wow. he's passed away, I'm actually eligible again. So uh maybe I keep thinking that maybe I'll just throw my hat in the ring again. I don't think, I think the odds are low that they would pick me again. Um, yeah. But who knows? Um, uh, Go so get that money. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Right, right. And um, I guess the other thing that that is always funny about me when I tell people is I, I, I have a PhD, but I don't have a high school diploma.
1: Um, I didn't know that.
0: Yeah, I, 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 left, I left high school early. And it turns out that like this actually in a couple of weeks that's going to be remedied apparently my old high school is going to present me with an honorary high school diploma so I won't be able to use that at cocktail parties anymore but uh, it gives me it gives me an excuse to wear my regalia anyway so
1: oh nice well yeah so I think you're the world's most interesting man maybe I don't know
0: (laughs) (laughs) at least I could appear maybe I could appear in that meeting that'd be nice that'd be nice so
1: yeah Okay, so back to the Oak Ridge stuff. Um, how did you get into Oak Ridge? Like how, so you say you didn't have a, a high school degree. So maybe could you walk me through how you got to the point that you are now?
0: Yeah, so I um, I actually can't believe the arrogance of this, but I just basically wrote a, a letter to a few universities and said, hey, will you let me in? And it turns out that Tennessee actually did let me in and, and gave me a scholarship. So that was terrific because I had no idea how Turns out I wouldn't have been able to pay for school anyway. Yeah, I've gotten a full ride. Uh, you know, I kind of knew that, but it never even occurred to me when I was, I was a kid. Um, I spent a long time in college as an art history major, actually, and then only switched to physics near the end, like in the last year and a half.
1: Um, I love that. Yeah. Art history is really interesting, too.
0: I, I, some days I think I would have made a better art historian than I make a <laughs> physicist, but that, that's another story. It kind um, of
1: fits with the whole Jeopardy thing, too. Yeah, yeah, it's,
0: it's, the, it's the the sprezzatura thing, the effortless excellence thing. It's, it's um, I took a little bit of time off after undergrad and then decided I wanted to go back and, and get a degree, uh, get a graduate degree. And uh, I sort of always been interested in computers and I'm of a vintage that I sort of am maybe the first generation of folks who had a home computer, um, mm-hmm. really around all the, basically all the time from the time I was sort of in fifth grade or so. Um, so that, that really helped. So I knew I wanted to do something related to com- computing. Um, and I basically just kind of picked astrophysics because it seemed to be the hardest thing. So that was kind of cool. Um, and and I, I, I sort of bumbled into being part of a group that was just starting up back here at UT. Got my degree, went to Chicago for a while, uh, was a postdoc at the University of Chicago at a big computational astro center. And then when Oak Ridge National Lab landed the leadership computing facility which is what I work at now um, it was too much of a siren song not to come back and want to want to have the biggest computer in the world down the hall
1: from me yeah uh,
0: I can very not much remember bad. yeah yeah I, I can very much remember being sort of I was alone in this very building when it was brand new and I uh, started a job the first instantiation of this machine Jaguar that uh, that we had. And I I think at that point, I must have been the first human being in the world who had ever run uh, a computer program on 25,000 individual processors. Best I can tell, I I probably was because it was it was the biggest, biggest machine at the time. And I just sort of did it one afternoon
1: that's another yeah, interesting fact.
0: <laughs> yeah, it it, it it was really cool because when I did it, I didn't think of, think of it at the second I did it, but pretty soon after I did it, I was like, "Wait a minute! I've run That's on beautiful. you know people run on hundreds all the time, but twenty five thousand? I don't think anybody's ever done that before because I knew nobody had done it here yet, and we had the biggest machine. So
1: yeah,
0: um, so that was kind of cool. So this uh, the, the it's the bulk of my career has been um, shaped by computing in the Department of Energy complex period. So either here at Oak Ridge or when I was in Chicago, we did a lot of computing at the weapons labs in California, Livermore, um, Los Alamos, Sandia, who also had big computing installations. But the Leadership Computing Facility was, and still is sort of the very, very, very bleeding edge of high performance computing. You know, Currently we have the world, the, the nation's largest supercomputer summit which has a peak speed of about 200 petaflops. Uh, we just got supplanted by a machine in Japan called Fugaku, which is about twice the size. But um, even as we speak, the, the, my, the, the whole building here is being turned into sort of a cyberpunk monstrosity. There's all kinds of, of uh, water pipes and electrical conduits sticking out of what looks like a fairly sedate office building, but actually has a lot of infrastructure in it. Has 40 megawatts of power coming into it. For example, we're getting we're getting all that ready to feel what we think will be the world's first exaflop computer called Frontier, and we should be start getting cabinets. We should start getting cabinets for that machine uh, sometime in August or so.
1: I remember that was announced when I left in summer 2019. When is the release date for that, or when does it go
0: out? Yeah, it's so we'll you know we'll start putting it together this fall. And then uh, a big thing that we do is we have to uh, sort of put it through a rigorous acceptance test to make sure that it can actually do what we want it to do. That will likely take the rest of the year. Sometime in early 22, there'll be a list, there'll be a set of applications. They're actually on the board behind me. Um, a list of applications that we'll, we'll we'll put on the machine first. and. Yeah, see if they can produce some scientific results right off the bat. We've been working on them since about the time you left in 2019, pretty hard, uh, to make sure that they can sort of deliver science on day one. Um, we're going really fast. I, for a while, when I first got to, to the LCF, we would sort of field a new computer once every 18 months. Mm-hmm. but we were still very much in the regime of Moore's law and Denard scaling just working, right? Mm-hmm. Every 18 months, you sort of could get 2x for free. Right? Yeah. Because just because of what microelectronics gave you. Um Since about 2012 or so, that hasn't been so. And so we've moved to having machines that are hybrid CPU GPU machines to be able mm-hmm. to get more, more performance. But that's also meant that they've They've had longer lives. So Titan, which was our last big machine, was actually around for over six years, which is a really long time for a, for a cutting-edge supercomputer. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're using it literally right up until the day it was turned off. And actually, a Supernova simulation from the group I'm, I'm part of was, was was the last job ever run on the machine. So that, wow. that, And some it's going to be around for a total of six years probably as well. But we really push to get Frontier built as soon as possible. And because of that, you know, every single day, there's something about the software stack that's changing. Um, yeah. And that's, uh, that's a challenge for any team that wants to build software, right? Yeah. If the whole stack is changing underneath your feet, sort of as you do it, uh, that's a very dangerous sort of place to be you know for scientific computing it's maybe not so diff, so super um, weird but we ha- we have um, i think there's a there's this attitude among some quarters that scientific computing and sci- and scientists who do computing don't pay attention to software engineering very much mm-hmm. sort of seat of the pants and we're doing whatever the heck we want and we write yeah. almost spaghetti code and all <laughs> that and, and, and some of that, of course, is true to a certain extent, but more and more, the complexity of the codes and the complexity of the machines we're running on make that something you just can't do. You, you yeah. pay close attention to software engineering principles, you know, something that's, that was fairly rare even six, seven years ago, but is like something that absolutely has to happen now is continuous integration. People, people do that at oh, wow. matter of course for, for pieces of software. Um, and, and they do it for the full stack, right? I mean, all the way down, all the way down to the bare metal. And so, uh, I think that's that. And, and, you know, people also have adopted agile programming practices that are, that are cool, um, mm-hmm. work well, and really work well for scientific computing, right? One thing that doesn't probably work well for scientific computing is, is sort of what I would call software engineering requirements gathering, right? Yeah requirements and then try to translate those into something because um nobody ever does what they want in scientific computing they do what they can yeah that's one thing right so there's not it's a, not like
1: product as much product driven like we want this feature you're really trying to solve a scientific problem
0: right and and, and, and we adopt some of those things like you know a lot of yeah they do have release schedules. They do have release candidates. They have feature, you know, oh, yeah. what, you know a, a get pull request for a piece of scientific software nowadays looks a lot like it would look out in a, for a service provider or, or somebody mm-hmm. trying to do some sort of B2B, whatever. They, they look a lot alike, but yeah. fundamentally what you're trying to do is to solve a problem. And, uh, know if you run into the same problem uh, the same little little problem over and over again that'll prompt you know wanting to have a feature uh, a feature like that but it really is a big monolithic thing doesn't doesn't tend to work the other weird thing that makes it sort of strange and sort of incongruous is that um this is not true of every piece of scientific software but it's true of a lot the the developing the developer team and the users are pretty much overlay the pretty much the same population of people right yeah weird place to be for a lot of software projects right typically developers and users are completely disjoint there's no there's nobody who's who's both yeah a lot of codes where it's almost complete overlap that every user is a developer and vice versa um
1: that's so true
0: weird that's a sort of a weird place to be if you're not sort of used to it
1: it's fascinating. It seems like, uh, yeah, becoming more software engineer-like maybe is a good term, but like using the best practices of software engineering and like coding is becoming more important um, in the scientific community or scientific computing community.
0: Yeah, we're, we're totally treating it like a buffet, though. We're totally picking yeah what we like and yeah that's fine (laughs) you know and we're leaving the kale on there we don't you know we don't want that but everything else we we're 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 sort of picking we're picking what works for us and leaving what doesn't um that's great which i think is only scandalous to people who have this very dogmatic um view of it so
1: yeah whatever to them though right (laughs) 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 if it works it works (laughs) Um, So you mentioned a few things that I want to talk about, like, what does it mean to be exascale? Why does it matter? But first, I think it's important for us to maybe describe what is scientific computing and why is it important? Like, why do we need these big computers for scientific computing?
0: Right. So um, for a long time, scientific computing and computational science sort of interchangeably used has has meant uh, doing simulations, uh, it still means that, but it's also sort of expanding in its um, in its definition. So, uh, I sometimes I jokingly tell people that to to zeroth approximation, my job is solving partial differential equations, and mm-hmm. I think that's probably true, right? To to zeroth order, I solve PDEs, and the reason that is is best we can tell, um, that's what mother Mother Nature does. She solves PDEs and. Tells- <laughs> Tells nature how to act, you know, according to the, to that dance recipe. Um, you know, with the advent of really high performance machine learning and deep learning tools, it's becoming a apparent that there are some pieces of that that can be used in scientific computing. Um, it's a little bit different than the uses of machine learning and deep learning in, say, business analytics, where you just have mounds of data. And what you would like to do is you'd like to look at correlations and try to formulate some questions, right? Yeah. Typically, it's sort of the other way in science, right? I know the questions I wanna ask. I have a lot of data, right? How can I help a human answer those faster, more efficiently, with more facility? That's that's the kind of uh, of machine learning techniques that sort of are usually brought to bear. the the most useful things I've seen so far are are things that can help uh, analyze the results of simulations.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Some people have done other things, like they've tried to build in machine learning into the simulation codes themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think that's met with some limited success. I think you could probably point to a few that make sense, and then others it's kind of a stunt, really. Not really been super duper successful. Nobody's shown how it could be generalized. So yeah. I keep talking about simulation codes, right? Um, simulation codes are pieces of software, but they're kind, of, they're also kind of weird, right? They're they're almost like our data generators, right? So sort of working on them and engineering them is sort of different than engineering all of the upstream and downstream stuff that you need. To build around them to be able to get scientific insight, because that's that's mm-hmm. our, I think the techniques and the methodology that we use is sort of different, right? Working on simulation codes versus all of the accoutrement that we we need either yeah. on the side of it. Nevertheless, you know you have to have the whole thing uh, to be able to actually gain insight from from doing simulation. So, scientific computing. Mo- Writ large is, you know, just using computers to solve scientific problems. Canonical way of doing that is write down your mathematical equations, convert them to code and then (laughs) a lot and and do experiments instead of in the real world, you're going to do them in Silicon. And what you, what you try to do is try to replicate what you could actually do in the laboratory. That is, you want to be able to run lots of different experiments by changing little things. You want to be able to, to turn them over, but you also want to be able to have enough, physical fidelity so that you're not just generating heat and a bunch of numbers, but you're actually modeling what happens in reality. And that's 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 our biggest challenge because some of the some of the things that we try to model, there's a lot of physics going on. Uh, yeah.
1: That's
0: the that's the hardest thing. Or, you know, for example, in computational chemistry, the time scales that things happen on are really, really, really short. Right? Yeah. But you want to watch uh, a molecule, for example, how it actually reacts on sort of almost human timescales, seconds. And yet, you know, things can can change on nanosecond timescales. So a billion, a billionth of that time and be able to do that in a reasonable amount of time, even on a big computer like Summit or soon on Frontier, that's the biggest challenge. And so what that means is we are obsessed with performance. We're... we're more obsessed with performance than uh, maintainability than 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 maintainability uh, let me let me just say yeah. that that uh, we care about maintainability but if we have to pick we're always going to pick performance over maintainability
1: yeah so I remember when I was just trying to run a calculation on some electrons and I think you you said you do supernova so it's a or even climates different climates I know there's a ton of um, complexity with that. So there's all types of things running. And I remember mine sometimes, I believe, took on the order of days. I'm assuming that maybe something as big as stars. I know you're measuring different things, but those also take days too. So yeah. how months? Months? Oh my goodness. Wow.
0: Simulations that take months on the biggest machine. Yeah. And, and it's mostly because of all the physics, you know, climate, weather codes, weather as opposed to climate weather codes, it's important to make them run really, really fast, right? Even if you don't have all the physics in, because you need to be able to run them faster than weather actually happens, right? You want to make a
1: weather,
0: right? You can't, you can't have tomorrow's forecast be available day after tomorrow, because that's no, right? And so the weather codes strip down some of the physics, and they want to get it right, but they don't They don't have as much physical fidelity as the climate codes. The climate codes can run a little slower, right? Because climate happens over longer periods of time. And so they'll just make the code chock full of physics at the highest physical fidelity they possibly can get out of it. Now, they have to run lots and lots of different versions. They need to be able to change things because we don't know all the inputs to the climate system. So there's a balance to be struck there and they don't, they don't typically, the climate guys typically aren't like the supernova folks. Uh, <laughs> we're okay with, with waiting a few months to get ours, ours done. They typically want theirs done uh, in days. Yeah. Uh, week they get antsy. Right. And that's, that's probably not a crazy aim. Right? Yeah. Probably reasonable. Um, I think maybe we're a little unreasonable.
1: <laughs> but Say, as opposed to 10 years ago, is it true that you can answer questions, I guess, much more accurate maybe than you could before because of how the computing power has increased?
0: Absolutely. So for my particular uh, interest in supernovae, uh, 10 years ago, we couldn't make stars blow up inside a computer. And yet we know they do. Literally every day, somewhere in the universe, a massive Mm -hmm that's 10 or more times the size of the sun blows up it's how big stars die it's how we get all of the stuff that makes us us out into interstellar space right so if it weren't stars uh, all there would be in the whole universe is hydrogen helium and a little bit of lithium that's it right but that's generally not what we're made of right we're made of things like oxygen and calcium and iron right Mm Mm-hmm. And so it turns out that all of those things get cooked up in stars. That's the only place they come from. There's no other origin for them. And if they just got cooked and then got locked up in stars, well, we, we wouldn't be around because they would never be dispersed in the, in the space. So supernovae, the death of massive stars that sort of turn stars inside out, is how we get where we're at. So every atom of iron, every iron nucleus that's in your blood, was born in an exploding star. So, there's this that's so old, cool. <laughs> there's this old Carl Sagan quote about us all being stardust, and it's kind of poetic, but it's absolutely true. We totally are. We're the detritus of stellar explosions. That's what we're made of. And so I th- I think that's cool. You know, never mind the fact that they're huge explosions and they form black holes and neutron stars and they spit out a bunch of neutrinos that we can also measure here on the earth and they Emit gravitational waves that we can now uh, detect. You know all that other cool physics. Uh, I find one of the most interesting thing is that they, things is that they make us us. Uh, yeah. Made up, made up of. Them. So, ten years ago, we couldn't even make them blow up. We we knew all the physics. We well, we thought we knew all the physics, and we and we sort of did, but we didn't know it well enough to be able to to, to model it. And we didn't have enough computational power to be able to model it well enough. Mm -hmm. We had to blow up stars in 2D rather than 3D. And it turns out that really, really matters uh, because sloshing material in a star acts differently in 2D than it does in 3D. We knew how these subatomic particles called neutrinos interacted with the overlying stellar matter but we couldn't calculate that interaction quite accurately enough and not quite fast enough. Um, now we've learned how to do that and we have mm-hmm. big in- that we can do it in 3D. And now stars explode routinely. right? That's so, fascinating. Yeah, once you can get that happening, then you can do real science. Then you get to then you get to say, well, if this one star explodes, say it's 15 times the size of the sun, Will this 20 solar mass star explode? And will this 25 solar mass star explode? And how are they different? And did they make more iron that, that's gonna produce more, more iron for our blood than, than another one? And oh, by the way, does that 25 solar mass star, does it produce a black hole at the end? And maybe suck some of the stuff that it makes back into the black hole and some, only some of it escapes? All those questions, now we've opened up this whole new, whole new world of being able to uh, even ask those questions. Whereas before we were just trying to make sure, okay, we know all the physics let's make them blow up and sort of get close to the right answer. So that's yeah, so cool. <laughs> it's, it's been one of the most um, satisfying parts of the past decade in my career that we've actually got them to blow up. Um, Cause I mean, in astrophysics circles, there was this whole, uh, it was, a, it was always a joke, right? You know, but, but well, the supernova guys if they can ever get a star to blow up, we'll be able to answer these questions. Right. You would hear yeah end of every talk and now they can't say anymore right so we don't feel as picked on as we used to like yeah what now <laughs> yeah, exactly what you got now how you like me now but yeah. uh but it, that's all been because of the uh an extra march of computing technology and and the code and and the software we built yeah uh, the software has been you know it's been many people years of development Uh, dedicated to that I mean supernova supernova simulation was basically the first scientific problem that was ever attacked by a computer so back in the late 60s at Los Alamos they really one of the first things even before computational chemistry really took off yeah so uh,
1: it seems so brave to say I'm gonna sit here and try to write some equations and put them in the computer to simulate a star blowing up I mean (laughs) that's a big task
0: (laughs) It's cool. Yeah, it is. It's a huge task. And and it's that that's also I think this goes back to the whole Jeopardy thing too. Um it I often tell uh, you know, I'll give public talks or something like that. And they'll ask me, you know, why did you why did you start studying this? And uh it really goes back to that whole Renaissance man kind of thing that, that
1: yeah
0: I move on because it's the closest thing to being a Renaissance scientist you can ever
1: Because yeah. I,
0: I get to and have to learn something about general relativity, about particle physics, about nuclear physics, about uh, computational fluid dynamics, and, and learn all you know, learn about all these dimensionless numbers that that uh, mechanical engineers know about. Yeah. Uh, about astronomy, of course, you know all these different fields of physics. Whereas a lot of uh, a lot of even computational physics, you're just sort of tuned in with laser focus on a single problem, right? Or on a single narrow field. I get to talk about all that stuff. I get to write down, you know, one day I'll write down Feynman diagrams and talk about them with a postdoc. And the next day I'm talking about GR with a grad student. So it's, it's really cool. That's, that's, best parts about it. So.
1: Sounds like it. So what will exascale computing do for computational astrophysicists?
0: Yeah, I think in, in, in general for computational science, you know, it's, it, you know, in one sense, it's just one more rung on the ladder, right? We have, we've been striving for it for years, uh, but, you know, it, science is incremental, right? You, you learn one thing and then you climb up a rung and then you learn another thing and, and so on. And, that, and that's what's gonna happen with Exascale, right? Uh, I think one of the most important things about getting to Exascale and, and we should mention, you know, what we're talking about. So I, I, I use petaflops and exascales, and without sort of defining it, right? Um, it's important to understand how we sort of measure performance. So we measure performance of high-end HPC resources in terms of flops, floating point operations per second. Um, so, you know, we do lots of integer processing, but you know, most of the variable tops in our codes are double, double precision, and a, a flop is just take two floating point numbers, add them together, multiply them, get the result out, right? Um, Summit has a peak speed of 200 peta flops. So 200 times 10 to the 15 or <laughs> quintillion operations per second. Um, that's that's peak. That's, you know, if you had everything aligned in memory just perfectly, and could feed those GPUs uh Uh, an unending uninterrupted string of bits to compute on that that's the pop that's the 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 peak speed that you get
1: that's all the cabinet like all the resources all
0: all computing at once not having to communicate turns out the communicating between the cabinets of course because it's it's networking is is the slowest thing so frontier will be more than an exaflop so at least five times bigger than that a little little more than five times bigger than that We've targeted Exascale for several years now because we needed to push the vendors of these very large computers. We needed to push them to think about technologies that would let us get to that level of performance, but still have data centers that you could, I don't know, think about possibly powering or cooling or fitting fitting the computer into. So our data center here, you know, there's lot you know there's google giga centers that are way way bigger you know facebook has has a lot more computers you know acre, acres and acres and we're sort of mm-hmm. like a but it's a tightly integrated single machine right that's the difference rather than just racks and racks of servers that sort of doing things um, independently the the supercomputers that we build are are tightly integrated and have very high speed network connections between the cabinets and between the individual servers that are in those cabinets uh, in addition, we have a, a parallel file system that instead of just having just a big array of disks, looks like one big 200 petabyte disk drive that, wow. that you can write to uh, with high performance. And so th- those are the, the subtle differences between you know building a supercomputing center and just building a big old data center uh, like, like, like a big uh, provider would do.
1: Yeah, I was about to ask who said it's five times bigger. And I was wondering, okay, couldn't we just have some huge you know, center that had five times as many resources as, I guess, it's Summit that's Petaflop has, but you, you're you also considering speed right here. So it's also the connectivity. Is that the difference?
0: Yes, it's, it's, it's all of those things. So the, the individual components are faster. The individual nodes, individual servers in the machine will be faster. There will be more of them, but they're only, there's only going to be like maybe – and a half times more of them something like that okay uh but each one of those is faster the interconnect that's connecting them up is faster um and there really is no substitute for sheer size for for some scientific computing right you Mm -hmm. just more more and more memory that's one thing and you need to have enough processing units to be able to take advantage of that memory. yeah Uh, so it's a different sort of engineering challenge to figure out how many of those you need. It You know, could you do some problems um, in a cloud-like environment where you just had a bunch of servers? You could do some problems like that, right? And, and there are already examples of that in scientific computing where things are trivially parallel and you can just farm those out. You know, people, people are using cloud resources to do scientific computing. But for the very high-end monolithic simulations with the highest physical fidelity, it doesn't work. Um, you'd be hamstrung and, you know, your your performance would just go to the floor because either you'd be sharing the resource or the connectivity between the resources would be uh, in homo- inhomogeneous, right? You'd, you'd mm-hmm. predict uh, where you landed in a cloud resource. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's the big thing.
1: Yeah, so, the, so going to Exascale will help people Get things done faster and um they can get more done basically yeah.
0: more done more done in less time both both those dimensions are going to be important so like our our big exascale project is to write a new supernova code and oh, wow. using pieces of old codes but we're, we're writing a lot of stuff new and you know we want to do bigger more high precision high fidelity simulations but we want to get that month's number that I told you about earlier. We want to get it down to 10 days.
1: Wow. Right,
0: that would be, be nice. Yeah, to be able to tur- turn through these things. We think we got a chance. Um, uh, I think uh, we're, we've been working hard on it for a long time. Uh, but things are looking pretty good. I think uh, I think we'll be able to meet that.
1: Yeah, that's exciting. And who is, is it Cray or who's building the Frontier?
0: Yeah, so the Cray's building frontier. So Cray's now part of HPE Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Cray um, has, through its long history, been bought and sold and rebranded, and and it's it, it's like tracing the uh, it's like tracing the history of some uh, baseball team that's moved to like 15 different cities, right? Or like or like the Baltimore Ravens, right? They used to be the Cleveland Browns. And it's, <laughs> it's it's sort of weird, but it, the the group of we call them lovingly refer to them as crayons. Uh, That's been, a
1: great name.
0: All right. <laughs> been with the company for a long time. A lot. Most of those. Most of those folks came over to HPE when when the when the merger happened. And frankly, Cray needed that to happen. Um, they needed that to happen to be able to deliver Frontier, because they've always been you know sort of this small boutique supercomputer vendor, and um, because of that, they didn't have huge uh, production facilities. So they really needed the production facilities of HPE to be able to deliver a machine to yeah. Frontier. They've also got other contracts to build other supercomputers that are very, very similar to Frontier, not as big, but for for various customers both here and abroad. So uh, it was a good thing that they that this merger happened. Uh, of course, it's like all mergers. <laughs> uh, there's we were talking about culture earlier, right? There's different cultures between Cray and, and HPE. Mm-hmm. They first sort of got together. There was all this Sturm of Drang uh, uh, <laughs> clash, but I think it's gotten a lot better. I think they yeah. finally figured each other out. Uh, and so I think it's uh, very optimistic they're, they're going to be able to, to deliver on time. Yeah.
1: That's
0: so Summit on the other hand is built by, was built by IBM. So we're, we're a government installation and we're pretty vendor agnostic. We, we, we set out what we want, uh, have a call for proposals and sort of pick the best, the best candidate based on what we get back.
1: So, this also means, though, because you do have to, you said earlier talking about parallelization and everything, have to consider GPU. And there's certain GPU code, right? Like NVIDIA has its own type of code, if I'm not mistaken. Um, do you have to, what code are you going to use on Frontier? And do you have to change?
0: So, yeah. So, the, the short answer is if you've got CUDA code that you developed already, yeah. You know, an NVIDIA platform, you got to change because CUDA is proprietary to NVIDIA. And Frontier, instead of having NVIDIA GPUs, is going to have AMD built GPUs, uh, AMD built CPUs as well. Uh, that's less important because it's x86, sort of like everything else. Um, so you've got a handful of choices. If you've written CUDA code, um, AMD has a solution called HIP which is an interoperability layer um, that looks a lot like CUDA. So what CUDA is, is just an extension to C++. You It uses a set of directives to tell you when you want to ship things out to the GPU and have a loop, for example, be executed on the GPU uh, in parallel. Uh, HIP works the same way. And in fact, if you take a look at HIP, um, a lot of... CUDA functions start with C U, like CUDA malloc or something like that. There's a hip malloc. And so you can almost just run sed and do a search and replace and convert your CUDA code to hip. Nice. Oh, pretty close. Uh, we've actually had people do that. And uh, you know, within a couple of days, they were able to convert huge code bases, um, you know, tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of lines. They were wow. You know, not all of that is CUDA code, right? Some of it's just stuff that's not CUDA specific. Um, This is gonna bring us to an interesting point about scientific computing, by the way. Uh, But I'll wait to spring that until until, a little bit later. The other way you can program uh, GPUs is use directives. So Mm -hmm. they're just just macros that you put in the code that get pre-processed before it goes to the compiler. Uh, there's a handful of important ones. So the one that most people are familiar with is OpenMP, uh, which is a way to do multi-threaded programming on, on x86 spot, uh, sockets. Well, there's an extension to OpenMP that lets you do offload to a GPU, And a lot of teams are picking that as well. There's uh, another sort of directives-based approach called OpenACC, for Open Accelerated, which was actually... Uh, born out of the hope that OpenMP would catch up and move their programming model to the GPU. I think it did its job, but now people have written code in OpenACC, so they want to be able for it to go forward and, and still be useful, and, and, and that's going to be possible on Frontier. You're still going to be oh, able nice. to. nice. good. Um, those two programming models, turns out, are really, really important for us. And the reason is, although C is a clear and powerful second place, there's still one programming language that dominates. And you're already smiling, that dominates I
1: know what you're gonna say. very,
0: very tip top of HPC. It's it's 60% of all the cycles that we we use on it on Summit every year, and that's Fortran. And there's good reasons for that. It's not just that us old physicists are old and crusty, although that's true too. <laughs> Um, it's that for scientific, scientific computing, Fortran has some clear advantages. Mm-hmm. The big ones are, it has native support for multidimensional arrays, right? And that's, again, harkening back to what I said earlier. That's what mother nature does. Seems like she has vectors and matrix, you know, and tensors and these kind of things, right? And having native support for that is really, really cool. It also... Because you have to be so explicit and you, don't, you can't use a lot of object-oriented sort of programming models within Fortran, although nowadays you can do some, quite a bit actually, um, or things like inheritance or something. Yeah. Like. You have to be very explicit about the way you write things. And because of that, the compiler can't take shortcuts. And, mm-hmm. you, and because you're so explicit with the code, the compiler generates really, really fast code. So it used to be a much bigger Delta between rel- well-written Fortran and well-written C++, right? You had to get two, two people head-to-head who were, one was a Fortran programmer and one was a C++ programmer. And you just gave them a, you know, said write a, write a kernel that does this scientific, this solves this equation. Mm-hmm. That programmer, the C++ programmer, at the end, the Fortran programmer would win by like a factor of two. Or something. Wow. His code would just be flat out faster. Now, it's almost a dead heat, right? Because C++, mostly because C++ programmers have rip, have figured out how to write C++ that looks a lot like Fortran. Oh, okay. That's the biggest reason, not because, you know, compiler technology pushed it that way because C++ compiler technology has really improved, but it's improved in ways that lets you do things like, you know, manipulate pointers more effectively or, mm-hmm. doing, you know, um, be able to implement the standard template library more more effectively. Those, those kind yeah. of right, and so it really is what, what what you write. And so there's still a lot of Fortran on the machine. There's going to be a lot of Fortran on Frontier, uh, and and you can't you can use HIP and CUDA from from Fortran, but it's hard. Uh, you have to write you have to write a, a shim layer between the two to be able to make function calls like that. It's much mm. easier to use directives to do it straightforward.
1: Oh, okay. Uh, so I, th- I feel like I remember people talking about which version of Fortran they're on. Is it like 98 or something?
0: Yeah, well, th- there, there's Fortran 2018. There's Fortran 2018, as, as it turns out. It's just that um, Fortran doesn't have the same sort of standards regime that C++ does. Yeah. So if there's a standard for C++, there has to be a compiler that does it all before the standard comes out. Yeah. Yeah. They don't do it that way. They write a standard and then all the compilers catch up. So you're safe even today in 2021. If you use features that are in the Fortran 2018 standard, you're probably not going to find a compiler that'll have them all. Oh, wow. But if you have, if you use, if you use features that were, say, in Fortran 2005, you're going to have them all. You're going to be able to write to that standard just fine. Um,
1: and do people use a lot older versions of Fortran uh, also? Because I feel like I heard that before.
0: Yeah, they they, they they program defensively, right? To get around this problem I'm talking about, right? And yeah. So they'll, um, and unless there are a handful of people, there's a handful of people I know who, who write aggressively towards the standard, right? It's yeah. a big thing when we got type bound procedures. Uh, yeah. And, you could you could uh, you could uh, b- bind the the type of the function to the to the variables that were input and output, right?
1: Oh, you can kind of do that in Python three now, but I also write Python three oh, most it, of the time I, as if it were Python two.
0: <laughs> no, exactly. The same thing happens. With, so Python and Fortran are a lot alike. Really? Oh, t- tons alike, right? Except for the zero indexing, right, uh-huh. and, and white space mattering. Yeah. So Structure of a for, of a Python program looks a lot like the structure of a Fortran program, especially mm-hmm. uh, the most popular uh, Python package to use in scientific computing is NumPy, numerical Python. Yeah. You use NumPy, um, you can almost, you know, I'm to the point where I can just type a NumPy program just looking at a Fortran program. It wow. Is, well, bang, 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 bang. It's the same thing. Yeah. So yeah, so people uh, people do write defensively, you know, to older to older standards. <laughs> There's nobody using like uh, Fortran 66 anymore. Fortran 77 was the longest sort of lived one, uh, but even that doesn't happen anymore. People people, I think Fortran 98 is sort of the oldest sort of uh, standard that you see. But
1: oh, I just kind of guessed 98. I can't believe if I actually got that right. <laughs> <Fortran That's great. laughs>
0: It was a big watershed. The biggest the, Fortran 98, it was a big deal that you could uh, do array assignment. Okay. So if you wanted to zero out all the elements of an array of a multi D array, all you had to do was write array equals 0.0, right? Whereas before with like Fortran 77, you had to put a loop around it and zero out every single
1: oh array. I see. Wow, yeah.
0: Yeah. And so all that all that array syntax that came in, in Fortran 98, made things a lot saner right i mean you could easily, much easier to read that code because of that so
1: nice uh that's interesting about the the differences in languages i actually never wrote fortran um while i was doing it but i know a lot a lot of people were and most of the programs i used were in fortran too yeah um so it's it's fascinating
0: a long history of computational chemistry and mid fortran They're, they're about the same yeah
1: yeah so um I remember that I think in some computational chemistry stuff, a lot of stuff was CPU heavy, um, but some stuff is also GPU heavy. So, can you talk a little about a bit about what makes something CPU versus GPU heavy?
0: Yeah. So, um, other th- another thing I tell people, right, when I'm trying to introduce them to the whole notion of, of computing on GPUs, is you know the, the reasons we moved to GPUs is because uh, it turns out that the kind of things that they're used for in gaming also happen in real physics, right? Yeah. Uh, momentum and energy transfer and all that kind of good stuff, right? Um, and they're really low power compared to CPUs. So you, for the for the amount of computing power you get, you don't have to spend a lot more on electricity, which at our size really really matters. And that's why we that's one of the primary reasons we use them. But there's no free lunch, right? And so what do you what do you give up for that? When you give up the notion that uh, they're going to be able to do smart things. GPUs are really, really stupid. Mm-hmm. Right? They don't do branches well. Um, they, they, don't do, they don't like anything that has to be that has a mask or a reduction or something like that. So there's a handful of operations because GPUs are dumb and compilers can't generate code that lets them do these complicated things that a CPU is much better for. And modern CPUs, because we haven't been able to shrink the process uh, very much and therefore get huge gains from Moore's Law or Dennard scaling, um, more and more the and real estate on these really fat CPUs is now dedicated to doing specialized tasks like... Mm-hmm. Uh, doing a, uh, an operation out of order from, from the regular program counter. GPUs don't have any of that. They can't do yeah. it. They really don't. So if you have a part of your code where you're having to sort of pick and choose what you're doing, if you have conditionals where, you know, if, if this condition is met, go to this part of the code. If another condition is met, go to another part of the code. If you need to do a reduction where you take a lot of numbers and reduce them down to a single number, All of that stuff's very, very effective on a CPU. If on the other hand, you have uh, operations in your code where you're just gonna do the same arithmetic operation to a big old array, just over and over and over and over again, that's perfect for a GPU, right? And people have also cheated sometimes, right? And if there's two branches of a code, uh, sometimes they just do both branches on the GPU and then throw away the one of the answers. Because sometimes that can be faster than actually letting the CPU decide which branch to go down.
1: Okay. Oh, I see. Yeah. I see what you mean. It totally, Interesting.
0: It totally it it totally depends on what the what the bottom of the loop, what the what the body of the loop nest looks like, whether or not you can get away with that or not.
1: So Yeah, it's fascinating because uh, as a software engineer, I don't really, I mean, I'm running on Google Cloud, I I need some sort of memory, right? But I'm not thinking about parallelization or GPUs, and uh, it gets pretty complex. I mean, you're you're coding, you're multi-threading, multi-processing, and trying to put it on a GPU and, you know, not leak your memory and make sure everything works okay. I mean, it gets so complex for someone writing this. (laughs) It really
0: really does, and, you know, and... And you know, a lot of modern software engineering is all about the effective use of APIs, mm-hmm. right? Underlying libraries or services or something like that, and we, we certainly make use of those in scientific computing. But frankly, sometimes we just don't trust them. We just yeah. don't trust them to have ample performance, um, or that they're going to make def- they're going to have default choices that are just going to cripple us somehow. And and so yeah. there's there's a use there's use of APIs, but it sort of tends to be very focused and uh, people obsess about how what's actually going on underneath the hood you know not not just it's not enough to tell a, a computational scientist usually here's your API I'm you, know, you give me this and I'm going to give you this back um, They'll want to know how before they adopt it.
1: Yeah I uh, I have one experience of that with uh, the software I was using and all they gave you was a binary so it wasn't open source so I feel like maybe with other scientists too, with what you're working on, you're doing something very specific. You maybe want to optimize for one thing. I mean, these people are, you know, they have a group a grad students or whatever, and they're probably good for a lot of conditions. But for mine, I really wanted to do something specific or like fix a problem that I couldn't do. So I think there's a risk probably in scientists uh, taking on, uh, you know, that library, especially if you can't fix it yourself. So maybe then people start to not trust and be like, I I want... I want to do it myself and not rely on anyone else, so that I can make sure it's fast enough and does what I want. Maybe.
0: Absolutely, absolutely, and you know, it's it's racking up that technical debt, right? Yeah. It's um you want to you want to make sure that whatever you adopt in that vein is going to be around because codes tend to live of order decades in scientific computing, right? So yeah. Much like old old business accountancy systems that are still written in COBOL, right? Yeah. <laughs> And it's, again, it goes back to you know, the use of Fortran, but uh, you want to be able to uh, rely on the fact that the next two machines are going to have whatever you whatever you use and that the team, for example, that's that's working on it hasn't gone off and been distracted by doing something else. And that's the other thing. Right. There's um, because it's scientific computing, the market is small. And there's a lot of open source software, and if folks get interested in doing something else, then that piece of open source software can languish, and you know, yeah. you know, you will get further updates, and and of course, the performance relative to what what you can do on a new platform will, will also fall concomitantly, and so it's it's a it's a delicate balancing act. Uh, I think people sometimes, and they'll, they'll be defensive then too, right? They'll I was just working on a piece of code this week and it uses a um, it uses what's called the GNU scientific library. So the mm-hmm. GNU version of, of the scientific library that does root finding and other things, and, but there's, there's all these macros in the code uh, where you can say, well, you know what? I don't have GSL. Uh, here's a handwritten version until you can find a replacement sort of thing sprinkled throughout the code. And you can just set that macro when you compile and say, I'm going to, I'm going to do the stupid thing because on whatever platform I'm on, I don't have GSL. And that's probably one of the things, that, that's probably one of the open source scientific software products that's definitely going to survive. I mean, mm-hmm. as long as there's Linux, there's probably going to be a GSL. But people care enough that they're not, not quite ready to trust that. Sometimes. Yeah,
1: and probably also because if it's your research, the cost is high if something like that happens.
0: It's absolutely it's, it's huge, right? It, it, yeah. it, uh, to be able to retrofit you know, the cost is no higher than, you know, having to do it, uh, in a commercial setting mm-hmm. uh, relative to the research budget you have. It's huge.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> because the research budget's pretty small for most, for most code projects.
1: Yeah. So, uh, what are you working on now? Like, what are you, what are you running? Or do you, do you run yourself, uh, jobs on the supercomputer?
0: I, I, I do. I, uh, I, I sort of insist on that. So even though I'm the director of science now, I uh, I feel very strongly that if I don't stay in touch with what's actually doing, what's actually happening, both scientifically and computationally, then I won't be able to do my job very effectively, right? Yeah. So if I'm just frozen in amber and telling you, you know, what happened when when dinosaurs, like, I don't know if we can see on the camera, but I have like an old blade from an old Cray vector supercomputer, uh, from almost 20 years ago in, in my office. Cause just was cause it's cool. If I'm sort of frozen back in that ice age, um, I can't, I can't communicate to anybody sort of what the excitement is about. So yeah, I myself actually run stuff. So, so this week, um, I, I spent a lot of time, and I don't know, were, were you saying earlier that uh, you were wrestling with CMake lists and earlier this week? Is that what it was? Oh, um,
1: I was doing SQL stuff.
0: Oh, SQL stuff. Yeah, so that's even worse. So <laughs> I spent a lot of the week uh, uh, wrestling with CMake, um, which I have a I love-hate relationship with, mostly hate, <laughs> trying, to, trying to figure out how to add new neutrino physics uh, to the codes that we're working on, so writing tests. But even that, I mean, I think that, that that's a great story too, because uh, the code I was working on is written in C. It's not written in Fortran. Uh, all of its tests are written in Python, and you have to use Swig to be able to have interoperability between the two. Um, and it uses CMake as the build system. So all of those things would not have been true so much. I mean, they were probably just coming to the fore when you were an intern here. Like, so I mean, I, I think wow, yeah. it's becoming sort of common place just right, right when you were experiencing this. And two years before that, you wouldn't have seen, you certainly wouldn't have seen hardcore physics like that uh, being written either in C++ or having tests and unit tests that were written in Python. Mm -hmm.
1: That
0: would have been something that would have been very, very unique. And now it's becoming old hat. So um, and and I was running this on the uh, on the new test system that we got for Frontier. So I was trying out the latest and greatest. So we have. Uh, and was it fun? It was. Yeah, it was a ton of fun. I, 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 totally, <laughs> I spent hours on it and it felt like minutes. I mean, it's very much it's very much what I like to do. So uh, it was easy. For, it was it was easy for me to get lost in it really, really fast. So oh,
1: that's great. Um, yeah, that's really cool. So. I was going to ask you what are some really cool problems you or others are solving. That's a really cool problem, but are, are there any that are on that you're allowed to talk about uh, running at Oak Ridge that you just think are like some really cool scientific problems that people are trying to solve?
0: Yeah. So you know, the good news about us is that even though we're at Oak Ridge, people a lot of people don't understand that the laboratory is an open science laboratory. Now we mm-hmm. do a little bit of stuff that's that's classified but it's a very, very small amount. For the most part, the laboratory is an open science laboratory and our computing center is very open science. In fact, it's open to anybody in the world. Uh, if you have a problem that is scientifically meaningful and you, can, and you exhibit the, the fact that you can make use of the world's second largest supercomputer, you can get time through a competitive process. Uh, so we have PIs and research teams from literally all over the world. Uh, computing on something all the time and all this and most of the science that we do is completely open so yeah we have we know we have several things going on that i that i think are particularly cool we've we've got um lots of uh, material science going on uh, revol- revolving around understanding how superconductivity actually works not not just figuring out what the what the the minimum resistance is for some material, but why does that material actually superconduct in the first place?
1: Yeah. Like, what
0: makes it happen? And it turns out that a key part of trying to figure out how that works is to relax, and you're, you're a computational chemist by training, uh, <laughs> you know the difference between a Hartree-Fock approximation and and something that's like the GW approximation. So. In, in those, in those two, in, in those two approximations and, and, and Hartree-Fock, which is what computational chemists typically do, mm-hmm. you freeze the, all the other electrons in place and you let a single electron move through. And I always liken it, it's not a, it's it's a horrible metaphor for a computational chemist, so don't, so don't shudder when <laughs> i But it's sort of like, you know, being uh, on a, in a car on a frozen lake, right? You just you just slide along the frozen lake and everything stays in place and you're moving along and you can compute how fast you'll go or whatever. Yeah.
1: And
0: other, If you relax that and you let the other electrons move at the same time, they're going to form wakes that are like being being on that lake when it's not frozen and that there are other boats moving. And so you're going to get tossed and turned by the, the wakes of the other boats. Being able to do that kind of calculation really gives you information about how superconductivity actually works and having yeah. a fundamental of an understanding of of how it works means that you could probably use that knowledge to be able to find new superconducting uh, materials. You know back in the back at the turn of the millennium, the way people figured out if something was a superconductor or not is they literally went into their lab, they went into their supply cabinet and they would take three elements and then mash them up with a mortar and pestle. Mm-hmm. Take them and try to run current through them, right? Yeah. Slow, laborious process. Now we can do that because of this fundamental understanding. We can do that on a computer. So I think that's pretty cool. That is cool. Yeah, to be able to do that. Of course, you know, the kind of stuff we're doing, uh, I, students working with me, uh, I talked a little bit about the core collapse supernova. There's another kind of supernova that happens when a white dwarf star, which is what our sun will become, somehow gains mass somehow, either from another white dwarf or another big star or something, and it, and it grows too big and it catches on nuclear fire. And when that happens, it, just, it rips completely apart and it spits out, turns out a lot of iron into the environment and a lot of other things. We, those particular kind of supernovae, they're called type 1A supernovae, is what we use to figure out the shape and size of the universe because we can see them from a long way away because they're very bright. And they tend to have a brightness that's standardized. They're always basically as bright no matter where you see them in the universe. And so you can use that information like if you had a flashlight that you knew the intrinsic brightness of. If I shine the flashlight on your little, on your, probably on your phone, because you probably have a low light detector. Anybody can probably download a low light detector on their on their phone. If I shine the flashlight when I was close to you, you'd get some number. Then if I go twice as far away and I shine the light on your detector, it's gonna be one quarter as as many photons hitting, hitting the detector because the intensity drops off as one over R squared. When we look at type 1A supernova because we can see them over a huge fraction of the observable universe, it turns out they fall off faster than that. They seem, they look like they're farther away than they should be, which means that in an earlier time, the universe expanded faster than it's expanding now. And it was that discovery that led us to the hypothesis of dark energy, if anybody's ever heard of that, right? So people hear about dark matter, which is the stuff that seemingly holds galaxies together. But modern cosmology is obsessed with this notion of the dark energy that makes the universe fly apart faster than it used to. And so, Type 1a supernova were really the smoke and gun that let us discover dark energy. So it's really important that we understand why they're as bright as they are and yeah. can change that brightness. Is there anything about, you know, old early in the universe white dwarfs that would make them less bright than ones nearby now? And if we don't understand that we're, we, we can't know if dark energy is really a reasonable hypothesis or not. And so we're working really hard to be, build big 3D simulations of exploding white dwarfs with and including all of the possible isotopes that can be produced in the explosion, because that's what we see when we look at light. We actually see radioactive decay of certain isotopes in a type 1a supernova explosion. And so instead of having a dozen species, we're looking at having a couple of hundred species. And that's why we need the power of of something like Frontier to be able to pull this off. So I think also think that's pretty cool. Uh, It's also pretty cool to watch something that's roughly the size of the earth uh, get ripped apart completely in two seconds of physical time Uh, because nuclear flames, it turns out, move really, really fast.
1: That's insane. Mind blown, kind of like the star (laughs) (laughs) the dwarf. (laughs) uh that's crazy to me because like to work with that stuff every day i mean i look at the sun but i really don't think much about you know the pictures you see the sun that looks like plasma blah blah blah, stuff uh but to work with that every day and think about that makes you feel kind of small but kind of in a in a weirdly amazing way because like wow i'm so small these crazy things are happening
0: (laughs) right it it, is especially kind of cool to think of the the sun almost by definition because because it's the thing we know best
1: mm-hmm.
0: it's like goldilocks right it's, yeah. it's, big, it's not too small it's not too, hot, <laughs> too cold and it's because we use it as the measuring stick for everything
1: yeah
0: right um and so it's going to have an interesting life but not nearly as interesting as some other stars uh, like like Beaver's. thank
1: god yeah.
0: <laughs> and don't worry nothing's going to happen for about five billion years so we're good you know? yeah we're
1: good for a while <laughs> That's funny. Uh, my last question that I'm going to ask you is what is the best part about your job?
0: Mm. The best part about my job is I, I really am sort of, even though I came to it a little bit late in my undergraduate career, I'm, I'm a little bit of a science junkie right? Mm-hmm. I'm really a, and a science groupie. I really like knowing about all kinds of science. And the best part of my job is I have, I have to make time to learn enough different kinds of science to be able to explain it to people in a reasonable way. Uh, and it's by far the best part of my job is to, to learn how to grok to a, <laughs> certain, a, a certain standard, um, what individual scientists are actually doing on our machine. Uh, it's a ton of fun to be able to figure that out and then try to figure out some way to communicate it to people. Uh, Cause we take we take our, our responsibility to um, tell the public what we're doing really, really seriously. Right? The, the US taxpayer has paid for the supercomputer for it to, to do scientific research. Uh, we consider it part of our uh, responsibility to make sure that everybody knows what we're doing with it. Um, mm-hmm. From other scientists to policymakers to just the person who picks up Discover Magazine or picks up the paper. Uh, it's important to let everybody know that we're actually being good stewards that we're using the machine for what it's meant for and that we're pushing the envelope with it Uh, because uh, without it, I think there'd be a lot of scientific endeavors that would be completely crippled if we didn't have some of the largest supercomputers. Um, You know, there's, it's not, there there is a, it's a little bit rarefied air. You know, there's, 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 there's relatively few groups that can really use machines of this size and power, but there's not that few.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, we're consistently oversubscribed. We, we consistently have people asking for five times as much computing time as we have available every year.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, so we're, there's plenty of demand out there, if you will. And we're trying our best to fulfill as much as we can, but we, you know, we, we have to pick who we let on the machine every year. And when they, yeah. there, they, they, have, they run really, really hard. So it's part of my responsibility to, to tell their story to everybody. Um, and I'd say that's, that's one of the most fun parts of my job.
1: Yeah, that's great. Uh, Oak Ridge is a really cool place with a lot of interesting things going on. I think some people don't realize like how much cool stuff is going on there. But
0: Yeah, it, it's amazing. I mean, I, I, I the past year, because we used the machine so much to do COVID-19 response. Oh, wow. Uh, and we had lots, lots and lots of molecular dynamics simulations of that spike protein. Yeah. if you close your eyes, you see the spike protein in your mind's eye because you've seen it on the news so many times. Yeah,
1: I know exactly what you're talking about.
0: And uh, we've done tons of other stuff, epidemiological studies, but, but I've, I've been on like uh, local and national newscasts and been interviewed for magazines. Amazing. All of that, but. Oh
1: yeah, the article, that was a a great article.
0: Yeah. And and so I talked to a, um, a new news station in Nashville, right? I mean, it's, No, so just, you know, it's three, less than three, well, it's two and a half hours from here in Oak Ridge, right? The people had no, the, the pe- all the news folks at that local station had no idea where Oak Ridge was, had never heard of the National Laboratory, had no clue.
1: Yeah, I've met some people that don't know, but not all from Tennessee, but yeah, I'm surprised.
0: Right? And, and you know, and it, was, and it was, and this was somebody who was sort of on the science beat and yet had no idea. That the the nation's largest multi-purpose laboratory was you know this close to the city they were in. So that's
1: crazy. Yeah, there's all sorts of things that go on there. I mean, I know even quantum computing is something going on there, and I mean even which is the my, laser rat laboratories and stuff. Yep. So
0: uh, you know uh, quantum computing. I mean, of all the things that are sort of trendy and cool, and <laughs> yeah, it's my bet for the thing that we're going to be able to use use for scientific computing the fastest. I have I think that before my career is over we're going to have quantum accelerators on on regular supercomputers. I think
1: cool. And I think is it Travis Humble? Is that his name? Yeah. Yeah, he is really great and he was really nice to me and I think he's leading it. He's like yeah. a just like when I met him, I was like, he seems like a really good person. He's so nice. I don't know if I've met anyone <laughs> as nice as him. Uh, he is a nice
0: guy, but he's also a good scientist. And uh, Yeah. He's, yeah, he's leading our push here. In uh, we, have a, we have a large quantum science center now. Uh, yeah. David Dean's the, the director of it, and, and Travis is the deputy director. And Travis has sort of engineered us being able to get people on various quantum computers all over the country and the world. Amazing. Uh, yeah, it's, I, I, I think, you know, if, I, if I'm going to have to ride a hype train, I'm going to ride the quantum computing hype train because I kind of believe in it.
1: Well, I trust you. So <laughs> um, are there any parting words you want to leave with? Uh,
0: no, just um, I, th- thanks for having me on. I hope. I hope thanks pe- for coming. I hope people who listen to the podcast sort of get a feel for uh, what uh, computational scientists do as opposed to software engineers and other fields. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think we got a lot we can share with one another. And I think that would be pretty cool uh, to try to figure that out. So
1: I agree. And thank you for coming on. It was really fun. Thank you again for listening to this episode of Alexis Input. I hope you enjoyed it and stay tuned for the next episode with Mike Hurwitz about caching.